and the Michigan State. A lot of places now hire new faculties have a specific focus on the quantitative genetics. Purdue, Washington State. Uh, so it's not the old quantitative genetics we're talking about. It's a new aero quantitative genetics we're talking about. And I also want to give compliment to Dr. Jim Spech. And I think my first uh, quote unquote to invite this uh, uh, talk was given at AS meeting. At that time, Dr. Spech and then uh, uh, Perry Cragen was organizing a genotyping workshop. I was postal at Cornell, so I volunteered and then invited to give the first talk at the ASA, which was a great meeting. I went back to check that was the first uh, presentation I gave. Uh, thank you very much for that. Now today my talk is right after his. <laughs> yeah. uh, here I don't want to try to brag out my research. But this is a plant breeding uh, symposium. There's a graduate student training component in this. So I want to show that uh, when I was a graduate student, what I did, uh, that was back in uh, 98 to 2000. I did a master with uh, Mitch Tynstrup, who's now a maize breeder in Dalkir at Purdue University. At that time, he was in Kansas State doing the uh, drug tolerance. This is then I published out of my master research, this genetic analysis of the uh, tolerance. But then the, the title you know, did not actually reveal that at that time, I was learning the basic design too. You have a set of male cross the set of females, the genetic design there. I was calculating general combinability, specific combinability, and I did not realize that was very relevant of what I learned here later on in my career. And in this talk, we did, just did a greenhouse, you know, goose chamber experiment, try to correlate what is observed some like in theory with the field performance uh, in practice. And then later on, I did my PhD with uh, Rex Bernardo, did some small project. Here, this is where I learned about the Steve Stock synthetic and then non-Steve Stock, Ohio 43, more 17, that hydrotic pattern. And, you know, this very small publication gave me the opportunity to learn some of the things that are concrete, that are beneficial to my rest of my career. And then, this other project was doing about uh, genetic variance components estimate uh, advanced cycle breeding. You estimate the genetic variance component uh, from the uh, studies so that we say whether genetic variance is decreasing or increasing. And here we did something from metabolic control analysis. So metabolic control pathway is a theory behind epistasis. So that's something I learned about epistasis. And later on we did a one year postal with uh, Rex Bernardo. Here we learn about, you know, this essentially is something called GWAS, but that time we don't have enough markers. We're just setting up a model. In this publication that set the stage is a mixed model, QK mapping, and that time we were actually doing more complicated models because of the hybrid performance as a phenotype. And then later on, I sort of gained my nickname. Uh, I went to a meeting and some students will say, oh, you're the E at all. So this is my nickname. So it's because of, uh, because people are more familiar with uh, probably two or three, uh, you know, two of these publications. One was the uh, Nature Genetics publication where we did a QK mixed model. So you could talk about this forever, but really what we did is we reintroduced this mixed model framework under the context of genomics and just really uh, people liked it. So really actually influenced a lot of study, and, but also make it uh, difficult. So it used to be we're just mapping easier, but 
only after we introduce the mixed model, things get more complicated. You have to Q and K and and then, then later on, we did this uh, nested association mapping design. I think it happened that uh, Jim showed that uh, nested associated mapping the diagram. So we did that. Uh, that's published in genetics. And later on, we did also, uh, when I, after I started at uh, K-State, we uh, did a uh, simulation study about genomic selection or genomic selection for quantitative traits with Rex. This turned out to be uh, one of the earlier papers uh, that in genomic selection that is well received by the community. And then my postdoc and student that did all other quantitative related uh, studies. And, and then we have other studies I'll briefly introduce later on. So what I'm saying that uh, as a uh, grad student or postdocs in plant breeding agronomy, this general area, you, you learn the basics from a smaller, small project you assign. But if you actually expand your knowledge while doing the research, I did not stop, stop at design two. I learned about design one, I learned a diallele, and then I, I learned all this together. And, and then I found it very interesting, very helpful that now we're using this knowledge to apply to the genomics data set. So, and then over the years, I always try to think of what our role. I mean, as a scientist, always thinking, what are my contrib potential contribution areas? So two questions I like to ask is that what is the most efficient ways to identify gene underlying complex traits? This actually is very challenging because we know that complex traits are controlled by multiple QTOs or interaction and also in, or interaction with the environment. I mean, it, it's so difficult to play with this. There's a lot of things that have to be involved, right? And then another one would be how can we incorporate genomics and phenomics technology? to improve the current breeding process. If you listen to some of the presentations by Pavari and other uh, speakers from industry, what they're saying is that the plant breeding is uh, constantly evolving and also exceedingly, uh, exceedingly successful. So that's the thing you want to improve. So, but, and it's very difficult because something has been very successful, you want to improve it. And then, so that involves a lot of genetic, you know, gain equations, breeding cycle, reduce that, you know, and then or speed up the breeding cycle, uh, germplasm, trade complexity, and logistic support. And then years ago, I, I wrote a, a vision paper or perspective paper in the plant genome. Uh, that, at that time, we always talked about what is the potential for the ultra high throughput uh, genotyping. I mean, we're thinking that's going to change the world, but actually the fact is not. So besides the genome technology, we also need that uh, methodology to figure out the G2P relationship, genotype-phenotype relationship, mutational screening, integration library, all this research has to be carried out. And also the tools about double hyploid and transformation, screening, and uh, phenotyping, all these are all very important because of the sequencing and genotyping was mainly driven by medical research. They actually really pushed that forward. All the other things that plant breeders and geneticists, so we have to do our own because, you know, plant, we were actually grew out there in the field, right? They're not like humans, we'll line up in the doctor's office to get their phenotypes, right? We have to go to the field, phenotypes, it's very challenging. And then breeding methodology, and also I think uh, probably uh, focus on these people. So the training of the next generation uh, plant breeders is getting challenging because when I was a student, I did not have to run any jail, and I did not have to do any you know, like a GBS data analysis. I mean, look at all this young 
grad students here. I think you guys do a great job. I'm better than me because I didn't have to worry about all those high throughput things. It's a lot of work. And then this position, actually, I just recent hire at uh, Iowa State. I, I put this position description here is that kind of an inspiration for me, incentive for me, because this was well written. This was a sentence that attracted me to apply for this position and later get offered. It's to combine maize breeding with cutting edge genomic technology to address significant questions in quantitative genetics and develop and improve contemporary breeding methods. Uh, everybody knows that Iowa State is a place that uh, with this legendary names. So it's, it's a, a tremendous amount of pressure for me to uh, do something that are useful to the community. So I go back to review some of the textbooks in quantitative genetics. On the left side, uh, there are just uh, two legendary books. They're very comprehensive. It's amazing that this title of the book called Introduction to Quantitative Genetics. If you can just be good on a few chapters of this introduction, you're good for your career, actually. <laughs> it's very... <laughs> You know, if you look at Farrakhan's book, I think uh, Lauren was actually using this book, right, Lauren? Teaching some of his quantitative genetics class. I mean, it's very dense. And also, this is a new, some of the people call this new Bible, you know. You know, this new book is, you know, Lynch and Voice, also very extensive. You know, there's some mathematical part. You want to get into the details. This, too, is actually, uh, this, the, this used to be the yellow cover page by uh, Anna Haller, and it was updated where it became a green, oh, kind of different color. And this was by uh, Rex Bernardo, who's my uh, PhD advisor. It's, there's more breeding uh, components here. They're just theoretical ones. But I, I think I picked some of the goals of quantitative genetics. This hasn't been changed. It's the nature of quantitative trait variation, consequences of inbreeding and outcrossing, the constraint of the evolution process, estimation of breeding values, getting more interesting here, and a development of predictive models. If you look at the last two, they're about breeding, prediction, selections. The, the first, uh, maybe the first one or two, the first one is the nature of quantitative trait variation about gene finding, GWAS, you know, QPL stuff. Uh, so this is the general framework of quantitative genetics. So in the recent years, we have been, you know, doing some of the research. Uh, I'll, this too, I'll, I'll just show one or two slides about uh, multiple domesticated alleles and their distribution, uh, as shattering genes in sorghum and also other species. And then this was a recent work we did about genome-wide genetic polymorphisms underlying quantitative trait variation. So this is actually a study we tried also bring back to the uh, quantitative genetics framework. And I'll show, you know, a few studies and just, you know, quickly flip through them to get a taste about the combination of quantitative genetics with the genomic information. How do we do things better? And then these are the things that we try to do what we just started about crop modeling and epicene in genotype by environment interaction. Uh, Long-term project, again, is very challenging. Uh, analysis of framework data, the data from the high phenotyping. I mean, we've been really trying to uh, optimize this phenotyping scheme and then this, all this great stuff. But, you know, also we, I think we start thinking about what is analysis framework, where we're going to analyze this data together, and then about heterosis too. So this is the first study we did about the parallel uh, domestication of shattering gene in cereal. 
after this was published, I got a lot of questions because people don't understand why a quantitative geneticist want to do this, you know, QPL cloning project. And this go back, it was back to, you know, Dr. Spech, uh, uh, quote, uh, you know, something in theory, you know, everything is good, can be quantitative genetics. We talk about big A, small A, and 2PQ alpha squared, all this uh, mating designs. But, uh, and then when I study this uh, by position at K-State, I want to see exactly what is a big A, what is a small A, what is a wild type allele, what is a mutant allele. So we started the QPL cloning process, uh, try to figure out the genes, exact genes, not only mapping the QTL, fine map the regions, but exact gene control the shattering of the uh, habit of the, this wild type sorghum, this is actually the Mactavia sorghum. So what, what the quanti you know, the gene cloning stuff always interesting, it got published, but what the quantitative genetic side of this story is, if you look at upper here, uh, this is the wild type allele. So we actually shaded with the uh, same color. We have 25 examples that have, uh, accessions have this wild type allele. And then, but if you look at the domesticated allele, there's three different types. Uh, there's this GG type here, there's this uh, G2A, A2G, and this type, we have 37 accessions, and then 47 accessions. The story that we, in original biparental mapping populations, we had the TX430 and the Sorghum Vegetum. And then you clone this gene, you find this possible gene, and then you have the haplotype of this domesticated allele and the wild type allele. But then you sequence another wider accessions, you find this exceptions. They actually, this one would actually, if, before you figure out this one, you would say, uh, this, can I get a different pointer actually? I have a pointer in my bag. Sorry about that. So before you figure out this uh, mutation, which is a spike-inside mutation, this was actually pro, you know, wide uh, counter-argument to say this is a functional site because they're similar to the uh, wild type. And then before you uh, figure out this one, also this one is a large chunk of deletions. So in summary, there's multiple domesticated alleles unless you figure that out. So instead of big A, small A, wild type and mutation, we're talking about big A and small A-1, small A-2, small A-3. So this study was also, uh, this study also, uh, after we figure out the sorghum gene, we figure out the two copies of a uh, uh, maize gene that is potentially be controlling the you know, sensate to the maize and also a rice gene. So that was a parallel domestication in the shattering cereal. Here, uh, it's another recent study we published in genome research, and then about genic and non-genic contributions of the natural variation of quantitative tracing maize. This figure, I was not, you know, I was not trying to let you see those different figures, but basically what it says that sometime they do a GWAS mapping, the signal is landed on the genic region. Like we like to see a stop cooldown, we like to see a major change, a deletion, maybe in the intron, the exon, like spicing site mutation, but sometime you'll land it in the upper, uh, the promoter regions. So the signal can be on the genic regions and in, you know, non-genic regions. Here, Basically, we're saying that using some of the, my quantitative genetic skills, 
I understand using the NAM design, Nasty Association NAM, NAM design, because you select 25 funders, making them across, and then populations. So the chance to be detected of your QTL is not only depending on the genetic effect, which is the case if you do a bioparental mapping population, but in the association mapping panel and also the GWAS, it's not only depending on the genetic effect, but also depending on the allele frequency. So now I go back to the 2PQ alpha square additive variance. So you, for the genetic effect to be large, you have a unfavorable allele frequency it's okay, it can still be detected. That's a shape going up. So the chance to be detected is a bar on this plot. You either have a you know, good frequency, small effect, or large effect, have a less variable frequency. It can be detected. So now I'll uh, move to the, some of the examples about the, how we apply this quantitative genetic principles into the uh, mole genomics or gene finding research. The first one is a multiple recessive allele for non-tanning phenotype. And then when we started this project, we went back to the earlier study from classical genetic analysis, indicating there's two loci, B1, B2, control the tanning presence, absence of sorghum germplasm. You know, why we start tanning, I'll introduce in the next slides. And then we have a linkage mapping identified two QTL, one on chromosome four, one on chromosome two. So that was just easy. And, and it was, you know, straightforward. So, and then we published this Taiwan paper and then uh, a few years ago. So the reason why we start tanning is that tanning is somewhat interesting because it has a disadvantage of a stringent flavor. It has nutritional molecular precipitation. Uh, a lot of sorghum, 99% of the sorghum growing U.S. is actually non-tanning sorghum because you, the feed efficiency will decrease if you feed non-tanning, feed the tanning sorghum. But their ha tanning has its advantage. It has a defense mechanism, uh, antioxidant, and also B-code tolerance. Uh, interestingly, that uh, farmers in Africa, some areas, farmers would eat tanning sorghum, right? Because tanning sorghum would actually make you feel more fullness, so you're not hungry when you go to the field. So that's actually a little bit sad. So now we're talking about maybe we should actually feed the a lot of developed world with tanning sorghum so that you don't eat much, you don't get enough too much energy, right? And then, so tanning is actually the, on the testa layers under the, peri, uh, under the pericarp. And also tanning sorghum, actually interestingly, if you actually in, in Africa, uh, the birds, if you have a, you know, tanning sorghum and non-tanning sorghum, or pick on the uh, non-tanning sorghum, they leave the tanning sorghum alone. So it's like bird resistance. So when we were publishing that earlier study, we figured out uh, there's, a, again, one tan, and there's tan one, which is a wild type of Leo. There's tan one dash A, tan one dash B, that's uh, uh, the uh, mutant allele, give you the non-tanning. But then after publication, we figured out there's no, another one called tan one dash C allele. So all this alleles is actually the tan one gene uh, actually uh, have the WD40 domain. This is a WD40 domain for all of them. This is the wild type allele protein sequence. If you have the mutant, it actually gets uh, problems. And then Tau1C also gives you a problem because actually extended the amino acid sequence to be, uh, uh, to be much longer. So again, now we are 
because of now we're talking about the high throughput uh, genotyping, earlier study, we used uh, just regular, you know, SS markers and then uh, meta-QPO analysis and then, you know, and then the sequence of candidate genes. Here, what we did is actually using a different population uh, and then we use the GBS uh, SNPs, genotyping by sequencing, about uh, 20, uh, 20K SNPs. And then we were able to map, remap this, uh, uh, the second gene, uh, and then again, narrow down to 89KB uh, region. And then if you look at uh, the uh, candidate gene underlying that, within that region, uh, and then there's a one gene that stands out, because the tanning biosynthesis pathways have been very well studied in our adopters. So that, another story here is that when I was a grad student, postdoc, I never liked the adoptive work because we couldn't use it. But now after the sequence of the sorghum genome and all this other, you know, crop species, I think that actually now it's a time we actually can enjoy the benefit of this model species because we actually use that exactly in our earlier uh, publication of this, uh, this Taiwan gene. And then now we're using that again uh, for the TAN2 gene. So, uh, again, this TAN2 gene is actually a BHLH transcreening factor. And then again, we find the three, the three mutant alleles. That's a wild type, TAN1. And here, TAN1, TAN2A give you, there's a five base pair insertion here, another insertion here, there's 95 base pair deletion here. I'll talk about this frequency of three different alleles. As you can see that the mapping process is not always easy. You get single base pair deletion, Everything the same. It actually have diversities here. Now, what we did is similar to earlier study. We have wild type adopsis. You know, it adopts the weeds, so actually it has a tanning in the seeds. It's a brown color, was revealed by the brown color. And then there's actually a, a the this actually a TT2, which is a homolog of the uh, tan2 gene. And mutant, I give you this uh, non-brown color, which has non-tanning. And then if you actually do a transgenic uh, uh, experiment to put this uh, TAN2 gene, the cDNA of TAN2, into this uh, TTA mutant, you can recover this tanning. Also, we can see that it you know, induced a little bit of flowering time or the elongation of the stem. But then he was actually, we were able to do this easily because, I mean, doing transformation in Solgrim, it, it's, it's possible, but it takes longer time. This actually is easy. So here, here the, actually the most interesting part of this uh, uh, quantitative genetics in the gene cloning process. Uh, we know that these two genes is a complementary dominance. Complementary dominance is actually, we are talking about under our F2 conditions. You have to have one dominant allele of each of the two genes to give you this tannin presence. Within the homozygous state, so the real population, you can say that you have to have big tan one, big tan two, to, you know, homozygous to give the tannin, which is a solid circle here. And then if one of the gene is recessive or mutated, you get non-tannin. So you get this uh, full, you know, two by two tables of 92, this are 90, these numbers are the number of oxidations that we studied, number of sorghum oxidation we studied. So this actually would actually, uh, you, you could think about this big A, big A, you know, big, small A, small A, big B, big B, small B, small B. That's, uh, regular we talk about in genetic class. But then what is more interesting that if you expand this small tan2 with a small e allele, you can actually find a dash a, dash b, dash c allele, dash a, dash a, b, dash c alleles. Now instead of a two by two table, you get a four by four table. 
And then this pay, this sale is the same as 92, but then the other, these other three sales will split into uh, another, uh, let's say, uh, 15 sales. And you can see that what, what is more interesting is that we're always talking about, you know, GWAS and mapping. And, and what is interesting that Taiwan gene, it has a favorable frequency. So that you have about 57% of the Taiwan here, and then Taiwan dash A have 24, and then 12, and then 5. If you're doing the GWAS mapping, it happened that it's great that this allele has a higher frequency that allow you to map this gene, because these other alleles will provide a counter-argument to this gene, this mutation. This two will be lumped into this tamine gene, which will not align up with your phenotype. But it was interesting that for TAN2, you see the frequency is 2, 3%, less than 1%, and then 10%. So if you actually do a GVAS study, even if I tell you this is the gene, you will not get a peak. That's a lot of questions we got asked. You know, why we did all this money, we spin this phenotype, our phenotype was robust, was you know, indicated by the repeatability, why we don't see the peak on our interest candidate gene? So that's one particular reason. You know, this trade is very simple, and then there's only two genes functioning, and then you're supposed to see a peak, but if you did not see a peak, it might be because of frequency issues. The causal, there's multiple causal mutations, and then the most frequent mutations still not frequent enough for you to be detected. So that's actually what we say. GWAS was not able to detect a 10 2 gene just because of split of the frequencies, unfavorable frequencies, and we need an integrated approach in trait dissection. We need actually conducting this QPL cloning, mapping, and then function prediction together with GWAS, combine them, and then you'll be able to validate this gene underlying the uh, trait. Uh, this is a study we've done, uh, we're still ongoing. It's about the mason heritability and the rare variance. So many of you are familiar with the mason heritability term. This is after all this great GVAS study, and then this is actually done in the human medical genetics. After you summarize the specific genes that have been validated after its initial GVAS discovery, the amount of variation explained is actually far less than the estimated heritability. So the estimated heritability is the upper boundary of the contribution from genetic components. But after we clone those genes, validated, they're actually sum up to the very small proportion. That's a missing heritability. So the reason, you know, again, now we'll go back to theory. In theory, there's all these possible reasons, structural variations, PEVs, and then epistasis, GYA interaction, heritable epistatic, epigenetic factors of rare variants that can explain the missed heritability. This is a very hot topic, and sometimes we call dark matters in the universe. We, we can feel it, we can estimate it, but we cannot finding these genes and, and then to, to, to sum up, to make up to the proportion that we want to explain. Uh, we have a, you know, postal used to work in my lab, and later on he moved to a medical school. Uh, it was actually sad for us to lose him. Uh, he did a, a theoretical contribution, which is basically saying that if I can assume a distribution of genetic effect size, which is a double exponential distribution, and allele frequency classified as rare variance, which is the mali allele frequency under less than 1%, low frequency, 
uh, as a, uh, one person to five persons, and then the common variance is greater than five persons. This is the definition from the human genetic area. And also, you want to define a relationship between genetic effect size and allele frequency, which is, uh, this, this is actually the tricky part, because a lot of things we don't know, but we have to simulate something. So here, the, you can see that rare variance, we simulate it to have relatively ch higher chance to have larger effect than the common variance, which is the red line here, that small effect. If, if you take that, and then we did, most, uh, we did a lot of simulations, we think that rare variance only contribute to a small proportion to the overall genetic variance. Then again, that go back to the uh, basic quantitative population genetics, is a 2PQ alpha square. Alpha square measures the additive, uh, uh, the average effect of allele substitution and square, but the P and Q are the frequencies. If the rare frequency by itself, if you have 0.1 times 0.9, it's only less than one person, right? But if it's 0.5 and 0.5, there's 25%. So the frequency issues come into play here. And I'm working with some of the uh, human geneticists on the charge consortium data is a cohorts for heart aging research in genetic epidemiology. Uh, we were able to get access to 962 European Americans and with the 25 million SNPs on the 22 autosomes. Now this is actually the big data set that we have to deal with. And then we were able to do six, you know, sort of quantitative trades. We are now working on more of this trade, you know, more of this, uh, more trades than the six. Body mass index, uh, height, uh, the height, human height, this is the trait that highlighted with the missing heritability issue in the, you know, in the popular journals or the scientific journals. And then and the LDL, HDL, and, you know, triglyceride, and also total cholesterol. So here is actually what I exactly what we did. Again, this is a kind of a theoretical, uh, theoretical estimation based on empirical data. We always try to combine the theory and practice here. Uh, we used a mixed model. Uh, this is a trait, this is a fixed effect, and then this is a random effect. So if you remember, if you're familiar with the QK mixed model, so when you construct a kinship model, you were using the genome-wide SNPs to construct a kinship model, okay? We use the same uh, strategy, but here we would actually divide our SNPs to different allele frequency beams, and then using only SNPs within that frequency being to calculate the relative uh, kinship. Then we would have multiple kinships. Instead of having one kinship, we'll have multiple kinships. And then they'll have, instead of one random parameters, we'll have multiple parameters. And then we'll give, have an overall estimate of each parameters. So here is what we did on those three traits, BMI, height, and then LDL, HDL, TG, and TC. Again, there's now, you don't have to see this exactly, you know, small numbers. It's just a pattern. Let's use this example. On the x-axis is contributions to phenotypic variance. And then the first black bar is if you use all the SNPs all together to calculate the kinship matrix. That is your genetic variance estimate over, all the, over the, uh, phenotypic variance, about uh, uh, close to 40%. If you only use the common SNPs to estimate, you get less. But if you actually put common variance in one genetic principle component, 
and then low frequency and rare frequencies, you are getting closer to the black bar estimate. And then ignore this part. This will just uh, further dividing the common frequencies in different bins. It's not that relevant. The most important bar is that this second bar here. So you can see that in you know, many cases that uh, you could say that this tip that colored with the blue is the potential maximum contribution of the rare variance to the you know, overall phenotypic variance. And then now it's depending on whether you are optimistic, you are pessimistic. Okay? So we say contribution to rare variance to the total phenotypic variance range from 2 to 8% for six human quantitative traits. If you're optimistic, you say, great, I be able to count for this many. But if you pessimistic, you say, oh, that's not much at all. <laughs> but, you know, and then we say empirical detection and the validation of a rare and common variance would further enrich our understanding of the relationship between the allele frequency and genetic effect size. In this calculation, we did not have to validate each variant, causal variant regardless of frequency. We just have an overall estimate. This is what we get here. And then we mount to the third example of the G by E, and it's not a typical G by E would assume, but then we try to map QTLs and networks. And so, so we were actually doing the sorghum NAM populations, and one of the populations uh, we, we discovered is actually from TX430, this is the green sorghum line, and then P89812, this was released by Purdue, a Gabisa's program. And then it's interesting to see this the PI is the Puerto Rico, and then we observed that in Puerto Rico, this line flowered early. It is so far, this is not late. But in Kansas, if you grew the same line here, this actually flowered. This is actually still going on. We have to wait until, you know, you know, class started, and then I still have to go to the field while I'm teaching. Undergrad's helper is gone. It's, it's a mess, right? But you talk about the faculty's life. And then we have this exactly switch. Right, crossover interaction of the phenotype on those two parents. We say, well, let's put some students and then you know, see what we can find out. And here again, this Puerto Rico is close to the equator area. It also corresponds to the area where the sorghum was originated as a tropical C4 species. It's a photopure right? And then this is Kansas. Uh, and, then, and then this Iowa, we moved to Iowa. And then if you look at here, this Puerto Rico, Kansas, Iowa, and then this uh, blue line and the red line, this P8912, I mean, this is like textbook style of the crossing over interaction on these two parents, right? You know, here is early and it's really late. Look at here. And then here is, uh, you know, stable. And then, you know, Iowa, what happened in Iowa? It shrinked. I would imagine it keep going up. So there's a lot of this temperature and photoperiod combination interactions here. And then this is the reals. We come out in red line, reals. You see that some of the real will follow patterns of one parents and then the other parents. And then again, there will be other recombinants. They have a different pattern, which is buried in between. So they have, and then the overall pattern you see was perfectly, uh, you know, mimic whatever we observed in the parents. And then there's nothing fancy here. What we did is actually we did a, a GBS uh, and then on this population. And then we detect three QTLs using the phenotype from the Puerto Rico, and the chromosome six and nine, and then the chromosome six and eight and 10. And then if you do the same thing uh, uh, here, say upper panel was done by the single mark analysis, 
with the uh, GBS SNPs, the physical distance on the chromosome lens. But again, I mean, a lot of people will get trapped into all this, but actually what we did actually, we should always go back to the genetics because the genetics are fundamental behind this sequence data. If you are now going back to the Sinti-Morgan genetic distance, you can see this wide span of the chromosome 6 only occupy a small fraction here because of the less recombination in that region. All this up and down is because of missing data stuff. Because now if you go back to genetics, it's actually uh, very tight. And then we still see the chromosome 6 and 8 and uh, 10 QTLs. And then now if you see the Manhattan, we see the chromosome 6 QTL and chromosome 10 QTL, and 8 goes away. And if you look at some, do some research, we found out that chromosome 8 QTL was temperature related, that sensitivity on that, you know, it's not that photoperiod related. So it's actually the 6 and 10 is a common QTL that behind all this uh, change of the flowering time. And then now we here, this actually, uh, I don't know if you get it, this is the most interesting uh, slide we have. It just captures a lot of information here. Again, there's uh, Puerto Rico, Kansas, Iowa. And then here, uh, so remember we have two major QTL control this photoperiod response, right? And then chromosome 6, if it's T allele, with TGX430, or P allele, which is P8982012. And there's uh, something to not see here, but we'll just wait here. And then on the Kansas, you can see that the, if the T allele coupled with the T allele, and then this is a P allele coupled with the P allele, and then this is another one is a, uh, in Iowa, they have a crossover interaction. But if I enlarge this part, you see actually there's actually going downtrend, going downtrend. This actually, the red line is here going up, and this one, red line uh, going up here, and this red line going up here. So what we're saying that there's a QTL by QTL interaction. This epistasis together intact with the environment give you this G by E interaction on your parents. Okay? And then uh, so we have went to the literature and then John Mullis group published this uh, paper on ME1, which is a PRR37 gene. And then we think that this is a quantum 6 QTL we detect, detected too, and this possibly to be the quantum 10 QTL, that this kind of gene underlying this one. And then if we grew this TT allele together, in tech, uh, this is actually the uh, TX430, TT allele, PP allele, TT, and TP and PP. So this is just different QTL combinations. You grew them in different place. They'll show you a different uh, flowering time response. So now we try to work with some of the uh, crop modelers crop modelers, you know, physiologists, so they're doing this episode modeling. We try to combine that information into the modeling of the G by E interaction here. The last one will be quick, but it's actually interesting, you know, why we talk about this one. It is uh, bioenergy genomics. This was a funded project by the USDODE feedstock genomics program. Uh, I think the bioenergy crops, they're, they're relatively new. They're not like this, you know, regular sorghums or, you know, the crops. That would be green sorghum, corn, maize, rice, wheat. They're new. So how do we actually tap into this vast plant germplasm collections for the biomass crop improvement? They provide the opportunity to, for us to do something slightly different because you know breeding is still breeding, it's still growing, it's great, right? We, we can do a little bit different. So how do we increase the information content or information containing the data so that we can extract maximum information or knowledge? 
help us understand the germplasm and then establish the genotype-phenotype relationship. This sounds like a, you know, lofty, but what we did is actually, you know, in the green database of USDA, there's a lot of accessions. So we go in, we select first a thousand accessions, and I'll explain that later on how we selected a thousand accessions. And then we did GBS on a thousand accessions, and then we did something different is a selective phenotyping. You're not, from, you're probably familiar with selective uh, genotyping. That's when 20 years ago we did not have enough money to genotype every individual. So we say we'll genotype these uh, phenol phenol uh, trait extremes. But this is different. Okay, this is actually we genotype a larger extension first, and then select a subset to do phenotyping, and then we can do this uh, uh, field-based study and also do the NRI or high throughput phenomics on this, uh, you know, the prediction of this. Uh, biomass compositions, and then you can do GWAS and then haplotype enrichment. That's the scheme of the uh, project. So the reason how we narrow down this germplasm is actually just to start right. We're working with the, uh, the germplasm bank uh, specialist, and then uh, they have a lot of information. So we have 44K accessions of sorghum. Uh, about 78% of them are photopurosensitive. That means they have a potential to be used for biomass production, you know, grow them in temperate regions. So we narrow this 34K down to about 32, 33,000 accessions uh, based on their flowering time, photopure sensitivity, seed availability, and germplasm information. Later on, we narrow down to a thousand of them where we can get enough seeds for our, you know, do the phenotype and genotype. That's a, you know, going smaller process. And then what we did, selective phenotyping is actually we did the trait evaluation only on individuals that contain the maximum genetic information, which is the 300 of them. So genotype large processions, select subset. This selective phenotyping actually in the literature, uh, you talk about the, under the biparental population or the large diverse population, you want to maximize the allele numbers, gene diversities, or recombination breakpoints, right? And then there will be increase of mapping power and resolution compared with a random selected 300. So you have some design thinking going to the process, right? And then also we would expect it to increase your prediction accuracy. That's a, a thousand to 300, you phenotype 300, and then you can do uh, predictions for the rest of the 700. So if you look at this, uh, because we have all this data, you can say this genetic relationship, you calculate the kinship and the two-way cluster, this will be what you look like of the, the uh, close to a thousand accessions. You know, there's some relatedness accessions, but then if you do this 300 data set, they're pretty clean. There's less relationship building in within the set. So this is a set that you, we want to, uh, you can see that this is cluster, this stems, and all this hierarchical structure here, they're so different. So you want to actually focus on phenotyping on this, select the subset. Again, this slide, um, I don't want to use to bother with those details. What we did is actually, with 300, we can actually calculate the prediction accuracy just by manipulation of data or called cross-validation. Uh, this is fairly simple. And you can see there's a different methods for this cross-validation. They're pretty much the same thing. You can see the stock numbers because we have two-year data and high quality, high heritability or repeatability of this data. We have prediction accuracies very high. But then it's flow biomass on one year, we really have problems. So we actually have the prediction actually 0.4. And then again, depending on your optimistic 
or pessimistic. This 0.4 should not be, never be compared to 1, okay? The predicted accuracy should never be compared to 1. Everything is predictable, and we have nothing else to do. It should be compared to 0. Again, this is something that we have to get the message across. Every time people think the predicted accuracy is low, they're, they're, they're not happy, but I'm happy because either you have a prediction or you have non-prediction, okay? 0.4 is good enough, actually. It's not good enough, it's good, it's always good, you know, better than zeros. So here, the scheme here. So remember, we were going down from large extensions to the smaller numbers. Now, once you establish a robust 300 prediction you know, models, you can go back to predict the rest of 700. And then if you do some empirical validation with this 700, check whether you can still go further. And it, you, you, you re train your data set. You can have another updated training, you know, the prediction model. You can expand to the 3,000. Maybe, you know, that's just a theory, right? To get this done, you require, you require a lot of uh, field work and, and, and the computational work. But again, how we did this a genomic assist approach to the genetic improvement of biology crops is genome plus information, selective phenotyping, GBS, genomic prediction, and also at the same time, you can do GWAS if you want, because you can actually, you have a genotype, phenotype of the 300, right? Uh, this is probably last slide before my uh, acknowledgement. So I think uh, quantitative genetic has a significant role in the era of high throughput genotyping and phenotyping. Some of the things I haven't touched, because we haven't really think of good ways how to handle this one. But I give examples of epistasis, GYE, and the rare variants, and also the uh, genomic selection for the germ plasm enhancement. And then action, again, I used the plant breeding symposium. I always, you know, try to treat myself as one of the graduate students. Uh, so that actually, so you get younger, right? <laughs> and then take courses in quantitative genetics and related areas, plant breeding and all this, uh, you know, I get a checklist. I think many of the attendants have taken that one. Study one or more of those textbooks I listed in the first uh, few slides, those textbooks. It's always amazing that before I give a lecture, I'm sure that it's all in the same thing. Before we actually go teach students, we go back and read all those book chapters, make sure we understand again, refresh our memory, and before we talk, discuss. And then learn how to answer a question in genetics and breeding without molecular mark or QTL. This is actually, it's very interesting. I mean, every time we have a question, interview and stuff, I mean, we, we can answer questions without molecular mark. Even I showed you a lot of genomics, cloning, you know, this, you know, gene structure change, protein stuff. But you can answer questions without you know, having to refer to molecular mark or QTL because there's genetics. You know, there's, you know, there's old papers that there that are just great, right? You have to learn. And also get used to draw a flow chart and derive equations if you want to be good on quantitative genetics, if you want to be very competent in handling this big data, you know, this sequencing data and the high throughput phenotyping data. And, and also it's helpful to know how to program. I was used to program C++. I know that now these days you have to play with R. Yesterday we had a beginner and a student was saying how difficult to learn R and then, you know, and then but you have to update your skills all the time. And then, so read papers and discuss with others, attending meetings, always helpful. Here I listed some of the questions actually. I mean, there are textbook questions, right? And there's this, uh, you know, this quarter, half quarter, and then this active variance, dominant variance. This would be the uh, marker class, mean contrast of the QQ mapping of the F2s. 
this is the linkage disequilibrium calculations and R square calculations. I mean, they seem to be just so distant from us. But they actually, if you read some of the, our, our papers, you see this actually exactly things that are still very relevant with the genomic data, with all this uh, high superphenotype data, is very relevant. We should actually train students not afraid of the user equations to establish some level of expectations, then use the improved data to test whether this expectation is correct or not. Okay? Uh, with this, I'd like to give acknowledgement. Uh, over the years, we've been funded by the NSF for Plant Genome Program, led by the Mike Scalen Shoot Epical Mirror Stem project. These are the co-PIs. And when I was in K-State, we had a lot of collaborations with uh, uh, you know, folks there at K-State, uh, the breeders, and then the uh, crop engineering uh, specialist, and then the crop production physiologist, and then Frank White, and then this Scott Bean, uh, Mitch now moved to Purdue, and then how to treat, uh, uh, sorry, this is actually the, why I get this wrong? Uh, uh, Nebraska, oh, no, KSU, actually, uh, KSU for how to treat was did the, the transformation adopters for the gene validation. And then Jeff Morris now is the position at uh, Sorghum Genetics position, mainly Wang and then uh, Tom Clemente here from Nebraska. These are the other earlier co collaborators, and Rex and others. This is the human geneticist. Uh, we were working on this uh, human charge consortium data. And then these are the students, and these are uh, current graduate students, Xin Li and Matt. They were funded by different uh, agencies. Thank you very much. Okay, we, we have time for a couple questions. Has any questions? In your last trapezoid, you show the frequency of A and little a. Uh huh. But yes. when you and that would be true for a QTL biparental QTL. Yes. Happy uh -huh. mm -hmm. And then you point out you in your earlier discussion you have a rare allele with a large effect mm -hmm. in GWAS. Yes. That approach. There's a conundrum about that because you're analyzing accessions. Mm -hmm. So if you have a rare allele with a large effect and you walk out in the field and look at the individuals, the thousand or so, and you have one individual that's one out of a thousand that shows a strong height or whatever, can't you just find that rare allele with a large effect by inspection rather than quantitative genetics? Oh, um, here. Of the rare allele distribution. Yeah, yeah. So here, here actually, this is the 5350 would be the one, te yeah, textbook examples, but actually the more relevant one is the, here, you have a PQ that involved, and this PQ in the bioprotein populations, we have half-half, but in the GWAS, it will be difficult. Go yeah. back to your slide where you have the allele uh, uh -huh. effect size and the... Uh, Enamel one? Uh-huh. Uh, oh, too oh. far. Yeah, we're right there, right there. This one? Next one. Where you, your theory, okay. rare alleles. You had the curves. Uh, oh, curl, okay, okay, here. Yeah, right there. Uh -huh. Okay, now you show a very low frequency variance, a common variance, and then the rare variance. And what you're looking for is the large effect one, assuming it's a positive one, right? Yes. Mm -hmm. Because those rarer variants are what breeders would use instead of the common ones to get to the phenotype faster. Uh -huh. So when you're going into the collection, you're looking for rare 
alleles, basically. If you get lucky, you hit them in your first QTL mapping uh -huh. population. So, you know, you're saying you can explain the dark matter of the quantitative genetics universe by the route that you did, but from a practical perspective, we want to find large, non-deleterious effect alleles in the germplasm for immediate use in breeding. Yeah. Right? Would you agree with that as an assumption? Yes. And so, one of the problems with GWAS is those alleles in paper and silico, it's hard to find those, right, without actually looking yeah, yeah, yeah. at the lines in the field. Mm -hmm. So it involves not just phenotypic variation, but actually looking, going out there and seeing the particular lines like you, like you did. So I just wanted to make that point because sometimes you can get swamped with all the mathematical considerations without looking at really the, the field itself. Yes. I mean, there's yes. computer breeders and then there are field breeders. <laughs> so. I'll, I'll, I'll take that the comments. So I have, not, you know, I was just saying that this rare variance, although it has a large effect, it's not necessarily show up in your in your field. It might be masked by other real or other other effect. This is something that here we can show that rare variance has a large effect. But whatever we can show in the field is the uh, mutants, about the severe alleles that will show up right away. So this is slightly different, but I, I take that comments. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. All right, one more question. Uh, maybe I didn't quite understand what you did, but I think when you're partitioning the variation in your human data set among common variants and low variants and so forth, uh, I mean, you're just calculating a kinship matrix, right, with the different types of SNPs that fall into the different categories? Yes. So, I mean, I guess the question is the the contribution of rare variants to total variation and their importance relies on the fact or assumes that maybe they have large effect, but when you calculate the kinship matrix, you're shrinking their effect back, so you're constraining their effect. Oh, right? oh okay. So there are always uh, two levels of uh, effect size. Uh, when here we talk about the genetic effect size, it's almost thinking about the small a, big a, big a to small a, small a, and divide by two, that effect. But then then we, within this, uh, this calculation of the contributions, we're talking about the actually was weighted by the allele frequency already. You contribute to the genetic variance. It's a 2PQ alpha square. It's actually already being weighted by the frequency. Is that clear? I'm not sure if I answered the question. But you partition this variation by calculating several different kinship matrices, right? Uh-huh. So you're not allowing the so the rare variants are not allowing them to have their full effect that they might have if you had um, treated them as a fixed effect. Oh, okay, effect. okay, great. But the, uh, yeah, that's that's great because re remember your 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 total phenotypic variance was also is the whole population. Even that the rare variants might have a potential large effect under the equal frequency, but because their frequency is low. And because of the evolutionary theory, where you know the deleterious alleles or rare alleles, they tend to you know negative alleles to be selected against, so that they don't have a high frequency. So this weighting by the frequency to calculate its uh, contribution is relevant to that specific population. Uh, that's what they get. Yeah. Thank you. All right, thank you. Let's uh, give Dr. Yu another round of applause.